Hello and welcome to Autoholics Anonymous by the Autoholic. I'm Stephen Diamond. In this episode, Brian and I continue our conversation with Rami Fettiani, founder and owner of Inbound Motorsports. In part two, we talk about his current inventory of cars, the details of buying and importing a car abroad, the search for an Audi RS2 for automotive journalist Doug Demura, and other insights on the current market. So stay tuned and enjoy. We're sitting here amongst a ton of cars. You know, pick out a couple that you're really interested in and tell us about it. Oh, man. All right, so enough. We talked about the W124 stuff. Actually, I have a 126 in here that I'm absolutely obsessed with. It's a a 500 SEC Euro car that I bought in uh, upstate New York. Um, Actually, a friend of mine sent me the listing on Craigslist, and uh, it was something that was like a too-good-to-be-true for the mileage car. It literally has – you can see the registration sticker on there. It's from 1997 when this car was last registered. Wow. So it's been sitting. It's been sitting, which is not great. And obviously, I had to have it, so like I worry about all of that other nonsense afterwards, (laughs) um, which – uh, I'll, I don't need to get into that, but uh, car's got 53,000 miles on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a five-set uh, piece of uh, AMG uh, Penta wheels uh, that are actually AMG Pentas and not um, knockoff, or not knockoffs, but just the Ronals non-AMG. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got an AMG steering wheel, AMG trunk uh, spoiler, which is in, in the trunk currently because I had it off to do some some work on it. The thing is rough. It's sweaty. It's not perfect. It's not a show car. It's got some dings to it, but it just looks absolutely menacing. Um, and it's um, it's a car that I think I'll probably try and hold on to for well until I can make it right. But I, I just I'm obsessed with this thing because um, it just looks the business. It's black on black, which is not uh, not very common on these at all. Um, and then, yeah, and then what else do I have in here? I have a, a variety of, of oddball things that I don't know if most people in the U.S. have ever seen. I have this Fiat Uno Turbo uh, Abarth car that's sitting up on a on a, on the service lift right now getting... I thought this was like an Escort Cosworth. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, you just... You, you, not, not a lot of people know what it is, but it's a, a Fiat Uno Turbo that came from Japan, and it went through a company called Quick, uh, Quick Trading, which is a Japanese company. I actually met the owner when I was in Japan last year, and um, it's got a wide-body kit on there that they put on. It's got a full, like, uh, uh, Abarth, um, like, tuning package on there. I think it's got, um, like, an Abarth motor. It's got Abarth interior, Abarth uh, steering wheel. What um, year is this thing? Early it's an 90s? 80, 88. Oh, 88. 88. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I bought this thing a couple years ago, and it's been sitting in the back of the shop, and this is one of those long-term projects that we kind of just had a little bit of a window of opportunity to put this thing together. So it's finally going to get done. We uh, had the whole thing repainted. Um, you know, uh, had The motor is currently out in parts. Where Steve's putting that t- back together. Hopefully have this thing running by like early January. Well, it doesn't look like it. Front-wheel drive, four-cylinder turbo. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and it is just, I don't know what it's like because I've never driven it. I just thought, you know, this thing looks amazing. Um, it's a cool little hot hatch that, you know, we hadn't seen here and I had to have this thing. Um, but it's just been a long journey of getting this thing running. So that's definitely a cool uh, thing that I cannot wait to have done. Um, some of the other cars that we have in the shop right now, the uh, car that you mentioned up in the top left corner of the lift is a uh, Toyota MR2 uh, Veilside demo car that they um, – uh, actually, Veilside, the tuning company in Japan, they do a lot of like you know eccentric-looking body kits. Think um, Fast and Furious. It's very Fast and the Furious, and I think if we got this thing running, you know, by the time Fast and the Furious 24 comes out, I think that we could probably pitch them to have this thing in there. 
Um, but it's uh, a really like it's a very cool car. In fact, if you if you search um, uh, SW20 MR2 Veilside on Google, this car comes up as like definitively the only one that is like worth uh, talking about. It was their show car, Tokyo Auto Salon. In like 95, 96. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's got all the Veilside livery on the side. It's got that actually that blue seat up there. That's the sport bucket seat that goes in there. Um, it's very a like, seat. yeah, it's cool. Um, so very very cool car, but not in its uh, not in its best uh, form right now. So you found it at the auctions. Found Japan? it at the auctions. Yep, it was one of those things. Actually, Steve was he's an MR2 guy. He's got an MR2. Um, and I I don't really know too much about him, but he saw this thing and he's like, dude, this is a car that I've literally spent you know time playing in video games or looking in magazines like i gotta have we gotta get this thing so i was like all right let's you know let's let's buy it um but you know it got here clearly had been sitting out for quite a bit of time um so we needed we need to you know go through this thing and really you know give it a second shot at life which we will do and i think that's on the docket for you know the next six months hopefully we can get through that and you're planning to restore it to be the, in show the original yep, show exactly. state. yeah it has to be and that, oh, that'll be the first cool. that'll be the first time that it goes out on the road is when it's in that condition because hmm. yeah, right now it's it definitely is um a long way before it gets to that point i've um, seen quite a bit of that type of stuff recently where people have found you know show cars from the 90s and stuff like that yeah. you know that we we all saw growing up and and restoring back to that condition yeah we have um so that's one of the show cars that we have the other one that we have is not here currently it's it's currently being stored on its way up hopefully you know things with uh, the pandemic have made it a little bit difficult to get this thing up here but our other show car that we have uh is a r33 gtr uh speed wagon it's a uh one of one converted R33 GTR V spec that the owner of Option Magazine in Japan, which is a huge tuner magazine in Japan, Absolutely. built for Tokyo Auto Salon '95 '96, and uh, we own that one. It's a wagon. It's a wagon. So it's a R33 GTR. It's a white wagon. Wagon. Yeah. It's white. It actually started out. It was blue initially, uh, and had a whole bunch of like Option livery on the side of it. There's inside there. It's caged. It's got four. Recaro bucket seats, four red bucket seats, two in the front, two in the back. That's very And then cool. it's got uh, a full-on sound system in the rear. It's got a built motor. Um, and I think it was a pretty uh, – it, it, it did – I forget what the uh, 0 to 100 on this thing was. But it, it, there's like – I have some literature on like the performance of this thing. So it's a pretty like stupid well-built motor. Car, yeah, yeah, stupid fast. I mean it's called Speedwagon. They had to do yeah. something to it, right? So for that, taking his buddies out on the track. Yeah, yeah. All, him and him and his yeah, his two kids in the back and his wife, I guess. Like all of them. Yeah. Um, so that car is currently on route. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have that thing here uh, beginning of next year. We have a few very cool things lined up for the beginning of next year if all things pan out the way that they should. Um, some things that I won't talk about on the on the podcast because I'm kind of keeping those a little secret. But um, yeah, some some cool stuff. And then going down the line, we have a. Um, uh, 300 CE 124, another one. A lot of Mercedes stuff that I have in here now. And then I have a E46 M. Uh, no, sorry, I have a Cayman R that belongs to a friend of mine. His other car is an E46 M3. I have a C36 AMG Mercedes that's got 12,000 miles on it. Wow. Um, have you driven it? I have, yeah. I picked it up from the port. Actually, I drove it down to Delaware and back because that's where I get my titles for everything. So I had to drive it down to Delaware and, and title it. It's awesome. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's awesome. It's a, uh, it's a highway car. It's right. a very, it's a three point six liter straight bomber. six. It's an Autobahn bomber. It's unassuming. It's a little tiny um, sedan, yeah. uh, but fun. I mean, it's a really great car. Um, no, they look great. I think that was a, that. That's a great year for Mercedes because it was when the body style was starting to get a little bit more rounded, but it still has you know the squared off edges. And, yeah, 
it's uh it's sharp looking you know and it kind of it it's been aging pretty well you see one of these things on the street right now and you're like wow these things really look good especially with like the amg uh arrows on there right. it really really kind of it, it um it sits nicely this um, also came from japan came from japan yep yeah and this actually the c36 market's been pretty good lately it's been yeah, like pretty strong a couple like really nice examples have come up so the market has you know shot up I don't think anything with as low as 12,000 miles has showed up, so we're kind of holding on to this one for a little bit um, and then see what happens, see what and, happens really and then really the right time. strike while the iron's hot. Yep. And actually, I pulled all the wood out, sent it down to a, a guy down in Florida who's redoing all the wood, nice. steering wheel, everything, so it'll have a like, nice little refresh. You have to have a little bit of patience in this business because everything takes some time, right? <sighs> He's had the wood for probably a month now, and yeah. I haven't even heard from him, so thank you for reminding me. I'm going to call him and make sure that he's actually working on this because I guarantee you they're still in boxes sitting yeah, in his living room. Yeah. So, yes, you do. Um, it is definitely a time-consuming. Uh, in fact, this W124 that I have has a $10,000 sound system in it that the head unit, uh, it's a $25, $25, $2,500 head unit that I have struggled with trying to get this thing to work properly it like kind of works kind of doesn't work kind of work kind of doesn't work sound system is from the 90s originally. yeah it's a macintosh yeah. mx5000 like oh. like very period correct very cool uh, yeah very cool sound system and in fact i got it working once and it sounded excellent but then didn't want to work took it to a shop they fixed it didn't work again something's going on with it sent it out to the one shop in the country that can really service these things out in california they had it for about a month and they were like we, we don't have the part, like they figured out what was wrong with it, but they, they couldn't figure out um, how to get this thing to work without hoping that a parts head unit came in and none of them were going to ever. So I was like, you know, let's just bring this back, thing back here, put it in the car. Somebody with a little bit more time and energy can spend on trying to fix this thing. What is the car, by the way? It's a 400E, W124, 400E, 4.2 AMG. This is one of 20 cars that were built for the Japanese market only. Um, and it's got it's it's actually called a 400e 4.2 AMG Stage Three. So Stage One, Stage Two were like cosmetic updates to 400e to make it look like an AMG car. Stage Three cars actually got the tune, and I think they got uh, lifters, cams, that sort of thing. So it is a built AMG motor, full AMG kit. It's got uh, AMG Aero Twos on there, which I think are actually W140 wheels, but. Um, sit really nicely on this thing probably could use some spacers but the, it, it looks really righteous on this thing you know AMG, what kind of power it has i think it's got so the 500ds were man i'm gonna get my numbers like mixed 360 up. or yeah, something right? this is like and if, if so if a 500 is 360 this is this thing's like i think down on a 500 maybe 13 14 horsepower okay That's so it. right up there it's, it's right up moves yeah. so in fact the what you read about these 400 4.2 amgs is that this is the car that actually spawned the uh thought behind building the e60 which is a six liter 500 uh 6.0 so this is the car that kind of got AMG interested in doing that. This is from what I have read. So this is some people will call like a baby E60, you know. Um, and truthfully, you drive this thing and you feel uh, – there's two speeds on this thing. It's literally you're in park or your neck is broken. <laughs> there's literally nothing in between. Uh, and I had a, had an E60 that we sold in August. Um, and that thing, I mean, it's got the grunt. It's got the torque. It's just – it's got the put-down power. But like – if anything, maybe this is just a little bit less torquey, but, I mean, the power is all there. The yeah. thing is just, it's it's insane to drive. We just took it out on a video. It looks fantastic. Um, it's got 47,000 miles on it. Um, another great thing about getting Japanese cars is you get stuff with really low miles because they don't drive their cars, A, because it's pretty expensive to keep them on the road. Um, 
and then B, their public transport system is so fantastic right. that they, they don't really put a ton of miles on these things. You know, so you it's source like everything in Japan? No, I actually, I, I source stuff from all over the place. It just seems that way right now because everything in the shop is from Japan. Um, you get a lot of good stuff from there. And that's, uh, not, not only you get a lot of good stuff, if you know how to buy them, you get stuff in good condition. If you know what to look for, because they know how to cover stuff up pretty well. Um, well, and it's tough. I mean, you're you're over here, and you're trying to buy something online. And you gotta have a good person who's there inspecting, which I do. Do you uh, go often? Uh, I've been, been there twice. No. Twice. Yeah, not often. Not, not as much often. as I would like to. Yeah. And um, you met this guy online? Uh, met him on. I uh, first met uh, was introduced to him online, but I actually I met him in person in Japan. Went out with him a couple times. Like super great guy. Um, not you know a not particular about any car genre that he's like you know very. Uh, uh, deeply involved with, but he's sort of like he'll know how to inspect a car and tell me what is and what good isn't generous. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I think good. That's got to be key in this. It's business. perfect, and be, yeah. especially because I don't go. Out, I don't just buy GTRs or I don't just go buy you know K trucks or whatever. You know, most of the guys who import do. I've not limited myself to one uh, niche. I kind of keep it a little bit open ended, and then I just go out and I find stuff that I think really fit the mold. So no, I don't just bring in stuff from Japan. Um, it's just the access and the ease of buying stuff and knowing what I'm going to get, it's it's far easier. Plus the price point. Granted, the exchange rate's not fantastic right now. For a long time, maybe two years ago, you were getting like 20% off on what their prices were. Because um, of the exchange rate. Because the exchange rate was so good. And also, um, you know, the, uh, the, the market that you're dealing with, you're buying from wholesale auctions. So these are, you know, these are cars that are meant to be, not meant to be, but they're, they're put up at wholesale auction, so usually they will sell. Uh, most of the people you're bidding against are dealers, people who are looking to make money on them, even in Japan. So you know, unless there's a retail buyer in the room who's bidding on the car, you usually get stuff you know at pretty good, at a pretty good, pretty good pretty good price. Yeah, because you know, same, and I've been doing this enough where I've seen cars go through the auction and then I see them listed in Japan at like local dealers, and the price gap between what they ask for at dealerships in Japan. And what actually happens at these auctions is so huge that you can never buy a car, I don't think, at a dealership with still margin enough to bring over to bring, and yeah. sell. So the markup is huge. So as long as you're not bidding against um, you know, somebody who's a retail buyer who just wants to pay all the money in the world for it, you know, you can usually find a pretty good deal. And it's consistent. I think they sell something like 50,000 cars a week. In Japan, wow. I mean, it's that extensive. Is, and it's, is there one big auction that does it all? Or no, it's so many? there's auction houses, just like we have like Mannheim and all the like dealer wholesale auctions yes. here, or Copart. They have networks of, of auctions. There's the USS auctions, which are USS, uh, and USS is the name of the auction. And then depending on what city it is in, uh, that um, there's an auction a different, different day of the week. So there's USS Tokyo, which is every Thursday, USS <laughs> Nagoya, which is every Friday. So that... That translates to Friday in Japan, Thursday night for us into Thursday morning. So um, your girlfriend knows that you always have Thursday nights blocked off. Wednesday nights I have <laughs> blocked off because Wednesday night is Thursday uh, in Japan, uh, right. Tokyo auction, and that's the big one. That's where one. most of the inventory comes from. Okay. Um, so Wednesday <laughs> nights I'm usually working till about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, depending yeah. if I'm bidding on anything. Thursday is the same. And then uh, Tuesday is Yokohama. Uh, you know, f uh, Saturday is like Kobe. So depending on the day of the week, you know, I'll be I'll be working based on what the auction is. But yeah, these auction happen. These auctions happen every single day, uh, every single week at a different uh, auction house. But like they're constantly going. Aside from probably Sunday, there's an auction going on at all times. So no. tonight I'll go in and I'll look up right. the list for next week. See what's going on. And it's constantly updating. So tomorrow there'll be stuff that is coming up for sale. 
Tuesday. So like I literally have to look at stuff tomorrow or I'll miss what's coming up on Tuesday. You got to be diligent about it because the time frame in which they go up, I don't get like a two week window to be able to like do my research. Stuff comes up and sometimes it'll come up and sell within like 24 hours. So I got to either know what I'm looking for or, or have like a list in mind of stuff that I want. Yeah, because 50,000 cars a week, it's a lot to parse through. And 50,000 cars, I mean, that's new to old. That's from 2020 yeah, back course. to 60. Right. So right. like obviously it's very heavy. It's top heavy with like the 2020 down to like, you know, what we can look at right now, which is 1995, soon to be 1996 cars because I got to be 25 years old right. to bring them in. Mm -hmm. So I look at everything from zero to 1996. I look at every single thing that is available for sale to me and I go through that list and it's probably probably about a thousand cars on a daily basis that you know rotating either you know sold the day before or coming in the next day so about a thousand cars on average every day that you can look at to to try and buy or justify buying it's a lot of time to go through all of this it's a full-time job yeah and not <laughs> yeah not that alone is a full-time job and then you know finding something that you want figuring out what to pay for it, figuring out like what the market is if there hasn't been one, figuring out you know what to look for in those cars, and then articulating that to my broker in Japan who goes and sometimes can inspect it. Depends on the auction house that it's in. I bought cars that I bought sight unseen because right. they're at auction houses that are not within like the normal rotation of auctions that he goes to. Be will, like, he, will he travel to these? He's at these auctions anyway. He goes to, he goes to right. the big ones. But like if there's something out in Sapporo, which is like a full day trip up, mm -hmm. up the country, he won't go there. Or but you'd have to pay his time, right? Well, I wouldn't, or you sometimes can get, uh, you can hire people to do it. You pay somebody a fee, but um, most of the time he's just at the big ones and you know he'll go and inspect those. But if it's at an offshoot one, most of the time I just got to buy it sight unseen based right. on like what I've already been through. Um, you know, with these auctions and take everything that I learned to look for, ask about, find out beforehand and figure out whether or not it's worth buying. And obviously those cars, I bid a lot lower right. to make sure that like, you know, I, my, my risk. So, um, is everything in Japanese on these platforms? Yeah, how, yeah, how'd you figure out how to navigate it? Well, you the, don't speak Japanese. No, do you? I don't. But, well, the <laughs> auction sheets are in Japanese. I will say my broker is also, he's actually Australian, speaks English. Um, and everything on his website to navigate to the actual listings are in English. So, uh, communicating with him is easy, but then then communicating uh, what it says on an auction sheet um, and figuring out what that says, as helpful or unhelpful as it may be, um, and figuring out what the car actually looks like on paper, if I'm not going to look at it in person, that's something that you got to kind of try and do relatively uh, thoroughly, relatively quickly because... Put it through Google Translate? I mean, what do you do? Well, I, you know, use stuff like Fiverr. You use stuff like, uh, you know, Google Translate. Or I'll right. use my phone and try and, like, get it. That never really works. But, like, if there's something <laughs> specific that, like, I can kind of read, I'll use my phone to Google Translate it. A lot of times you pay somebody. I, I used to go on Reddit and I would take uh, screenshots of the auction sheets, post them on Reddit on, like, R Translate and have people translate them for me. And, like, that was a crapshoot because you might get somebody who would translate it. Maybe, maybe not. But now you go on stuff like there's a website called Fiverr. You pay somebody like five bucks and they'll translate stuff for you. Oh, that's pretty. So it's helpful. My broker go he'll, he'll translate a lot of it, but it's also quick. Like he he doesn't give me all the detail on there. He gives right. me like the general stuff, especially stuff that he can inspect. And then coupled with that uh, inspection sheet uh, and him actually physically going to look at the car at auction, that's how I have to come up with okay, what do I think this car is worth stateside back out every single bit of expenses that are going to you know going to happen from getting it titled or actually from the bring a trailer listing or wherever I'm going to sell it Your eBay fee, whatever right. backed out you know what the title is going to cost what the 
estimated mechanical costs are going to be, what the estimated cosmetic costs are going to be, what the uh, insurance is going to be, what the shipping cost is going to be, what my broker's fee is in Japan, what the, um, what the auction house fee is, plus the inland transport from the auction to the port, everything kind of backed out uh, up until, okay, this is the max amount of money I can spend on this car. And you go in and you say, okay, and budgeting and obviously my, my return on investment, all those things backed out. This is the most that I can spend on this. Um, and then, you know, articulate that number to my broker. And he, all he really does is he's in the room bidding on it. Oh, he does the actual bidding he's, for you. He has, he's, he is responsible for bidding. I think he actually has somebody while he's inspecting cars, uh, back in the office actually bidding. Um, but he bids on it up to the amount of money that I, you know, allow him to bid to or tell him to bid to. Um, and then hopefully we get the car under, you know, hopefully right. it comes in at like less than that. Cause then that leaves a little bit more room, but I, I you try and come up with that number, you know, before the car comes up for auction, and it could be a very short window from when I see the car up for sale, articulate to him to look at it, get an inspection. I sometimes get these inspection, like, photos. He sends me a Dropbox of, like, 50, 60 photos of this, and I get the photos, like, 30 minutes before the car is actually going up for sale. <laughs> so I'm like, I got 30 minutes to figure out whether or not I want to spend, like, you know, twenty or $30,000 on a car, um, basically, you know, without actually being there in person, and then, you know, take the risk of, you know, hoping that it's everything that it looks to be, or passing on it, you know. A lot of the times... You have to have it, a tolerance for risk in this business. I mean, that's not, that's not easy to stomach, right? It's all. It's, and the more that you do it, like I said, the more comfortable you get doing it, which is good and bad because you kind of know what to look for. But also, I take a little bit more risk than I do. Like sometimes mm. I'll buy stuff and it's like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to get because I had no inspection, no anything. And I just saw it. And I was like, this thing, I think, I think this thing would be cool. awesome. Right. And sometimes you hit home runs. I bought this, um, I bought this Mitsubishi Pajero um, because it was the only one that I had ever seen it in the the way that this thing was set up it was a mitsubishi pajero dakar rally special um did you sell it on bring a trailer i did yeah i saw it yeah okay, that was a cool car i bought that car uh i literally saw it maybe 20 minutes before it went up for sale no time for inspection no time for anything i got like the auction photos which are three granular photos of this thing went off of the auction sheet had a high auction grade which i thought was great and i was like this thing is like awesome somebody would i think somebody would like this thing just on the aesthetic alone mm-hmm. um you know and I don't. I still to this day don't know what the heritage is of that car. I know it was built at Mitsubishi as like a Dakar Rally Special, but I can't find any info on another one. It was not a raced Dakar car. I think it was something that they probably toured around and maybe just displayed. Yeah, promotional car. Promotional, but the thing was so well kept. It had forty thousand miles on it, something to that effect. It was beautiful shape. Had like Recaro, uh, like adjustable Recaro bucket seats, or that were on a spring, like you're in a truck. So it was, you know, like um, uh, like special rally seats. Uh, a front end like rally art design like bumper or bumper guard or um, a rear uh, rally art um, spoiler that had like the brake lights embedded into the back of it full rally art livery and I was like this thing's epic I'm gonna buy this thing and I think somebody will want it you know bought it sight unseen got here turned out the thing was amazing did 3x on what I paid for it and I was like yeah assume the risk like I, that was like I would say an example of like me taking assuming a bold risk on something because right. I got comfortable doing it I wouldn't have done it if it was my first car but it was something that I had done it enough where I was like this thing is cool I know I can sell this thing and it ended up doing fantastic and it'll pay for when the risk doesn't pay out yeah. you, know, you, you have to take those risks because you'll get those wins and then you'll get a loss at some point and yeah, okay that, it'll balance out yeah, yeah definitely so um, yeah there's been 
you know, been some some good purchases that have been completely on a whim, uh, completely, uh, you know, probably not look, looked into as much as I have. And some cars that I just didn't do as well, I, I'll say that I never got anything in. I do a pretty good job at like being, you know, uh, not not completely cavalier in how I approach these things. Like I, I think I have a pretty good understanding as to like what the market is, what people are interested in. I go to car meets religiously, or at least last year I did, year before, year before that. So I, I got a pulse for like what people wanted. Right. I was never out to lunch when like, you know, when it came to thinking like this is a cool car, but really nobody cares. Right. Once or twice I thought that I was in that market, but like it kind of, they kind of just fell flat, and till this day, I think that those cars were probably under, under uh, valued or under assumed. Like mm-hmm. those cars were actually great buys for somebody because I think that they were really special cars. But really, the, Not I don't, I don't think it translated over to people um, as which as well as they probably should have. But what do you think's undervalued right now? Undervalued, uh, man. Um, I knew you were going to ask me these questions that I'm going to have to come like off the cuff and answer. It's, <laughs> it's tough. Uh, what I think is undervalued and probably not undervalued, but I think that the market is getting ex- like very strong for off-road, uh, off-road like camping, ATV stuff, obviously with like the pandemic that we're going through. Definitely. Nobody, like you cannot go out and buy, I had a hard time buying like a roof box for somebody who wanted me to put it on his, on his uh, Porsche McCann. Couldn't go out and buy them because they were sold out everywhere. Bike racks sold out everywhere. Yeah. So these outdoor like um, full-on camper vans are like pretty hot right now. Um, that I get that still falls in the category of like you know enthusiast cars because like you know you, it's a different type of enthusiast yeah, market. It's for sure. different. So and I think like I think those cars are definitely not undervalued, but I think that you know they're on um, the up and up. Right. Yeah, now. they're definitely on the up. Haggerty agrees with you. We just read Haggerty's 2021 predictions. I haven't read it. Yeah, yeah. I literally haven't read it. Those are the camper vans, VW, uh, VW camper vans are one of the cars. They so, and I think because of like that, my feeling towards it, I actually just bought a VW camper van two weeks ago and that's coming in um, like an old Eurovan Westphalia with like the full pop-up tent, full like uh, oven, refrigerator, all oh, that cool. stuff, full down bed. You bought um, that from Europe or from Japan? Japan. Japan, and it was a left-hand drive car. That one probably came from Europe because they had the yeah. right-hand drive ones there too, but um, that's a left-hand drive one. I actually waited for a left-hand drive one, passed up on a really mint right-hand drive one because I was just, I just couldn't. It's tricky to sell you that. Well, so again, going back to like knowing who you're going to sell it for, which is important, I thought to myself, okay, the person that's going to buy this is probably somebody who, you know, maybe is a, uh, definitely a VW guy, definitely a car person, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe not really interested in like, subjecting themselves to they're going to put their family in this thing they're not trying to like show off they're not trying to like be cool and show up to a car meeting a right hand drive car they're going to be more concerned about getting their family you know safely from point a to point b the campsite whatever so i thought to myself i don't know if the right hand drive cars are really going to appeal to people because they might be you know uh interested in vws or cars but they're probably not car guys and like you really got to be a car guy to be comfortable getting into a right hand drive car so I, I pushed off. It was like a 40,000-kilometer camper van that was literally completely decked out to the moon with, like, the coolest shit. And I was like, this thing is awesome. Um, and I, I, I hesitated, and it sold. I, didn't say I, I wouldn't say I passed on it. I hesitated. It sold. And then ultimately uh, ended up buying one the next week that was same car, same color, left-hand drive, um, not done up as good as the other one, but I thought that one would do a lot better. Obviously, I have to think of this as like, you know, how, how, 
how can I sell this thing, mm-hmm. how much I can sell for it, and how easily. I thought that this would be an easier sell down the road. Um, and yeah, and so I got into that thing. And I have, a, I have a couple other things that I won't mention, but like to that effect of like off-road or alternative or alternative type vehicles um, that I that I bought that are coming in um, uh, over the next few months. Should have so, sold the Pajero now. I know. <laughs> I wish. I don't know if I would have done as well, even much better than I did on Brian's show. I thought I got all the money in the world for that thing. I yeah. thought I found the one guy who really wanted it, right. which is great. Um, and I was very happy with that with that sale. Everything about that was easy. But yeah, that would be that would be a nice car to sell right now. What um, percentage of the stuff that comes in requires you know tinkering with versus what can you sell? Just as it arrives, uh, we go over all the cars that we get in. I don't like to sell anything, and this is what drives me nuts about people who import cars um, from Japan because they they see this as like this is you know quick easy money, and it just it ruins uh, it ruins it for everybody else on a couple aspects. Is that they'll put, so they'll they'll bring in cars that are not uh, prepared for sale. There are cars that need work, and that's okay. I mean, that's fine, but like, um, won't do any of the due diligence, won't do any of the work, couldn't even tell you when the last time the car had an oil change. Like, we get cars in, we do an oil change, we do a filter, we do spark plugs, we test it out, we drive it. Obviously, we have to because I got to go get titles for these things, and it involves me driving down to Delaware to get them. So, we test these things out and actually put them through a little bit of a drive to kind of get an idea of what they need. So they all get tinkered with a little bit to some extent, um, and I usually budget, even if I look at a car at auction and it doesn't seem like it needs anything, uh, just surface level, you o- I always budget at a minimum 1000 or 2000 bucks, uh, depending on what price point the car is in, um, to do work on, whether it's cosmetic, mechanical. So that's, we, a, that's a good like advice to any kid buying a used car online. Like, you have budget to. a grand or two, it right. always yeah. happens. Yeah, you have Absolutely. to. And even if it's yeah. for preventative stuff, right? right? Like right. whatever. So I always have that in. We always do some work to these cars. Some of them require a lot more, like this Fiat, for example. I bought this thing thinking that I was gonna just be able to like turn and burn with it, but then we got it. If you guys saw it right now, it's not, not a turn, a turn and burn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just didn't feel, I didn't feel good about selling it the way that it was. And we, we ended up doing a lot more probably than I even wanted to do with it. But um, yeah, to answer your question, we tinker, we tinker with all of them. Some, some more than others. I have two very much project cars that are coming in, knowing there were projects when I bought them, right. um, but bought them very, very, very well to be able to accommodate that. So um, it's a mix. I like buying stuff that's ready to go. But the problem is when stuff is like really mint and really like nice. You pay for it. You pay for it. And like, and I think you almost, yeah, more people get interested, more people bid. You end up not being able to buy it for what you need, factoring all the risk at the end of the day. So the fact that we were able to do a little bit of the work obviously helps, um, you know, go into stuff. And maybe we have a leg up on the market where like we can buy stuff that, um, you know, other people wouldn't be comfortable buying. But right, you've already got a guy. Okay, I have a problem with my wheels. I can bring it to this guy. Exactly. I have a problem with this BMW engine. I can bring it to this guy. Exactly. You know? And we and there's a lot of guys. That's going back to the point is there's a lot of guys who do this and literally will not even. They won't even wipe the car down. I mean, you get the cars go up for sale and they still have the little. You see the so MR, the MR two's got like the little symbol from when it came off the boat on yes. the windscreen. Like right, that's right. the ship that it was on or where the destination it was, like you'll get guys who will put those up, never even touch them, don't know a damn thing about it, ask, you know, whatever they get for them. And it hurts me um, because, uh, you know, the cars that I sell, the caliber that I sell them in, 
they're very well vetted cars. And if I get, so this happened, I bought a car that came in and I've always tried to be like, uh, you know, it, my, the, the way that I sell these cars for the most part, they go and bring a trailer or something to that effect, some auction house. Um, and if you look at historical sale prices, um, you know, you can kind of gauge what you're going to get for them. Right. But some of the times I buy stuff where like there was no historical data for it. So you don't know what the car is going to get. You hope that, you know, you you're right on the market. Um, and you try and give the car like the best shot at being like a good sale. So you prep it, you make it look really good. And a lot of times I buy cars cause of the, it takes a while to get here. Car comes in, we're working through it. And one of them similar car, didn't even know that anybody else in the country had one goes up for sale and bring a trailer. And lo and behold, it's a piece of shit. Like the person who bought it and put it through just did not do any of the work to kind of give it a good shot. And then it sells soft. And it devalues and it your devalues all, right? Yeah, so it devalues the market for what I'm trying to sell. And that happens a lot. And like people online can't, it's difficult for them to have a perspective on the difference between what you're selling and Joe Schmoe's. They selling. don't care. Exactly. Or, well, maybe even if they do care, it's difficult for them to be able to tell, yeah. right? Or tell, tell and, or, and even understand what the, what the actual cost is between this difference and that difference. And maybe, look, maybe it's the wrong approach on my end. Maybe I should just buy them and sell them. And maybe the money that I put into them doesn't like translate back into value. A lot of people will tell you that you never get out what you put into them. I think that that is not necessarily always true. I think that if you have a car that is presented correctly right. and everything is right about it, you get the guys who like otherwise wouldn't be interested now interested. Right. And then you get more people in the room interested in buying it. And I think these things have the, have the you know, propensity to go two or three X what you even thought that they would do. They just, they go through the moon. And a lot of the times that's happened with me, I put cars that are up on Branch Trail that were just absolutely perfect. And my reserve was like a third. And I, that's what I needed to you know, right. make money to on make this thing. Margin, right. It was a third of what this thing actually ended up selling for. And it was, it was amazing, right? Cause like you really did, you did the car right. You put it up there and quite frankly, changed the market on that particular type of right. car. That first Alpina C2 2.5 that I bought, I thought it's a C2. It's a, so it's a E30 chassis that, um, uh, Alpina did a, I think the, the C was just like denotation of like what year, cause they had like a B, uh, a B2 and a C2. And then, um, whether or not it was a 2.3, 2.5 or 2.7, they just bored out uh, different motors to that uh, capacity. So this is a C2 2.5. Um, and that car was like, it was perfect. It was chassis number two of like a hundred that were made. Um, and that thing came in, we like, we literally made this thing as mint as possible. I got this thing fully prepped. I actually took it to Greenwich concourse one best in class with it. Cool. Um, and like really just gave this thing the best shot at like being an excellent sale. And I think I paid at the time I thought was the moon for like an Alpina car. Cause none of no Alpina cars had really done tremendous on bring a trailer aside from like a B10 by turbo. Mm -hmm. And this thing I thought I I thought I paid the moon for it, but it was such a good car that I was like, okay, this is something that I really feel strongly that I could at least sell, um, you know, and gain some following or gain some interest, whatever, gain some, um, you know, uh, clout in the business. And um, so I get this thing. I made it the best that I possibly could, put it up for sale, and it literally did. I think it did like sixty three thousand bucks. And I wow. think at the time the closest comp was like. $20,000 for an E30, you know, M3s weren't even bringing the prices back then. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was a really, it was a perfect car presented beautifully hit, you know, checked all the boxes and put everybody in the room that could ever want it. I've never had that much reaction even till this day, you know, that was 2016. 
it's 2020 and bring a trailer has probably grown 10x that size since 2016 when I started doing it. I mean, I used to be able to pick up the phone and call them. They have now, uh, uh, I've never, and I've sold probably 30 cars since then on bring a trailer. I've never gotten that response that I had with trying to sell that car. I got people calling me, emailing me before the car ended and offering me money to buy the thing before the auction closed. <laughs> I've never got that kind of reaction. Right. So, you know, you do right by these things. You really put them in the best light that you possibly can. Get the right photos. Put the buyer in the in the seat, you know, of like, I need to be in the driver's seat of this thing. Whether or not you're a Fiat Uno guy, because I would say most people don't know, like, what that is. Maybe if you were up in Europe or spent some time there. So you got to kind of put people in the in the driver's seat and make them feel confident in that, like, you know, if you did, they're not going to get in and the wheels are going to fall off. They're going to actually be able to enjoy this experience. So if you could do that, if you can accomplish that, and it's you know it's a good amount of work, I think it pays dividends on the back end even more so, well more than what you put into it. You know, well, and that that sets you up for longer term, you know, for for being a long term business, yeah, right? right? If you're delivering sets the reputation, right? You're setting yourself up with a reputation of hey, I deliver quality cars, you know, and and maybe if you have a car with flaws, you present it accordingly. And yeah, which I we think do. That I think that you know people will appreciate that with some percentage of value and what they'll pay over the long term. You yeah. Know? Yeah, they do. And we do. I mean, if there's something that is, if a car has been repainted, if a car has been, you know, worked on, if a car has been, whatever we know about the car, like I took the 400 E out today and I noticed that, um, there was like a little crack in the bumper and we were doing a video on this thing and I never noticed that before. And I already have a listing for that thing ready to go. And I never noticed that crack before. And I made a point to actually get that in the video so that the person seeing it, you know, knows that it's there and I'm going to go back and edit the listing. You know, it's tough to get every single flaw on old cars because you, might, you might think that it's easy to capture everything, but there's so much detail and, you know, you don't know what an end user is going to think is a, an issue or isn't, but you want to try and put in as right. much detail as you possibly can. So, you know, we do um, and every once in a while, you know, things get missed, whatever, never the intention to, we always present these things as accurately as we possibly it's can. It's tough though. I mean, I, I remember I sold my, I had a high mileage, 230,000 miles golf TDI in college and I sold it for what I thought was a lot of money, like five grand. Yeah. And, uh, and the guy after he bought it was upset with me because he felt that I had withheld something, which was that I chopped off the muffler <laughs> and I was like, it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about I, these I didn't things. mean to withhold it, you know, yeah. like I had no bad intentions, but he was like, he said, you know, I can't have this, my wife, whatever. And I was like, oh man, you know, you'll I never get it all. It. Yeah, you'll right. never, you'll but never it's get tough. it all. It's a, it's a really tough business to meet people's expectations. Yeah, and you never know, and like, you never know who you're going to get when you put yourself in a position of selling something at auction, right? Because you never know who the end user is going to be. Could be a guy who's just like, hey, cool, this thing's awesome. Where do I send the money? This thing looks great. I love it. Or another guy who wants the asbestos. And then you get the other guy who's like, uh, you didn't tell me there was 8.8% asbestos on the other side of this thing. And, you know, I want my money back. I've never had that experience. I've never had anybody, like, give me a hard time after the fact. Because I think that we do right by putting these things out there as best as we can. But, yeah, you don't know who you're going to get. So I'd love to get – I'd love, you know, long-term to get to a point where I just have a very good, solid core group of clients, which I do have now. Um and to a sustainable point where like the cars come up for sale and I don't even have to take any on any of the risk anymore. I can just pick up the phone and say, Hey, do you want this? Right. This is what it's going to cost. And then, you know, I just, I, I work in whatever I think is, you know, a reasonable, um, you know, rate to be able to handle, facilitate the deal, basically broker these deals. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and do that more readily than assuming all this risk because it is, it is a lot of risk to take on. 
and a lot of you know financial capital to put out up front. Right. Um, but yeah, more so I'd love to just have a core group of clients who I know and I understand their level of neuroticism or like ease of dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can just say, hey, look, this is a, I, I see the car and I know that this is for him. And I pick up the phone and I say, hey, this is for you. And they say, let's do it and yeah. get it that way. So that's where I, I'd love to work towards. But I think you only get that way if you have you know, enough, uh, good karma, good, like, you know, business reputation to be able to do that. So you got to prove yourself out in the market. Uh, Yeah. It seems seems like you're doing that. I mean, you recently worked with Doug DeMuro for the RS2. I I completely forgot. What's the story on that car? Yeah. It's a, it's a, I can't tell the full story. (laughs) I can't tell the full story, but yes, I did. I, I, I'm sorry. I can't, I don't, I don't think that I can, but, uh, uh, he contacted me because of my very eccentric uh, Instagram account that I have with all of my oddball cars, and obviously Doug is, you know, he's interested. He's, in that yeah, stuff, quirks yeah. and features, right. you know, like you got to. He's interested in the interesting stuff. So um, he found me. I think I forget how he found me. There was a post that went out. Um, I'm drawing a blank as to what attracted him to my Instagram page, but he put something on one of my photos to the effect of. You know, wow, this is amazing. Going through all your Instagram like photos, how are we not best friends? <laughs> Something to that effect. He right. said that, and I was like, and I was like, damn, Doug Demure just wrote on my wrote on one of my posts. I gotta think about how to respond on here in a way that like is gonna keep the conversation going. So I wrote back and I said something probably stupid. I said something to the effect of like, well, we are, but now we are we are best friends now or something like that. And I just responded to like what he was putting out there. Um, and then, you know, I sent him a, a private message saying, Hey, look, Doug, like, you know, obviously, you know, I'm a fan of your work. Like if there's anything that I can ever get you into, we have a ton of interesting cars that come in. I'd love to have you out here and like, you know, go through, review some of our stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know you're out in San Diego, but if you're ever on the East coast, um, you know, by all means, I'd love to have you in, in the shop. So he responded and he said, uh, yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm, I will say that I'm not usually out there unless I'm up at the Cape. Um, but you know, I would love an RS2, <laughs> and I had just bought an RS2 for another customer of mine that I imported, and um, I was like, I, I think that gave him a little bit of confidence, and that I was not just some other importer guy who's like bringing stuff in. And I said, hey, look, if you're interested in RS2, I just brought one in, and he's looking for a Nagaro blue car. So I was like, I just brought in a Nagaro blue car. Um, I've already I already have a few of these like in like in my uh, like back pocket that I'm kind of working on, you know, maybe you're interested in one of these. And then a whole bunch of things that I can't tell you about, blah, blah, blah. And then we ended up finding him a car and I, <laughs> but like he was receptive to it. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe because of, you know, my, my Instagram account and like maybe my reputation, I don't know, you know, if he, I doubt he asked anybody if they knew me, whatever, maybe went on bring a trailer and saw my, my, um, Your listings. uh, my listings history. And, uh, and maybe that gave him a little bit of confidence, but ended up, you know, finding a car for him, uh, video chatted with Doug a, a couple times to like go over the details and then, yeah, found this car and, um, uh, and he got it maybe, I don't know, two months ago, I think I that thing came in for him. So, uh, yeah, worked on, that was a fun little like thing to work on over the summer and, um, yeah, and that was it. Um, did you get to, did you get behind the wheel no, of the car at all? No. You didn't or, even get to touch it. No. And originally the, originally I think, well, maybe that was the plan for my, I'm trying to figure out who's the original plan that was for the original plan i think actually for that car was to um always go to doug i don't think that was ever to come here the original plan for the the car that i brought in for a customer of mine you know when we first set out to buy it he wanted me to get it uh, because i was storing another one of his cars here but he lives down in texas 
Um, and, you know, I, he wanted me to get that car and kind of go through it a little bit and then, um, you know, maybe deal with some of the paperwork stuff, get everything in order and then send it down to him in Texas or he would come and pick it up because he has a house in, in the city. And right after he bought it, he started going nuts and looking up like old Audi videos and like advertising for like the old RS2. And he got so hot on it. He was like, we got to send this thing over to me. I can't, I can't, can't send wait. it. To, I, I need this thing now. He's like, I already bought a shirt. I already bought like, I was like, I was like Prepare damn it. I was like, I really wanted this thing to like bring in promote and like, you know, do a little bit of stuff with at least like go through a drive or take to a car show. Cause it was like height of summer too. Right. So absolutely. I no. missed out on two opportunities to get into. So I've yet to still even actually be in an RS2, but I've supplied it's two of them. It's pretty funny that you've transacted, but have not had the chance to. I do all the time. There's so many times yeah. I transact on things that like I, I want to, you know, get into, but I just, you know, fortune doesn't uh, work that way for me sometimes. So a lot of times I get, you know, I get to play with the cool stuff. Um, and then sometimes I don't, and then sometimes I do get the cool stuff in, but I'm just too inundated with all the stuff that I have on my, on my agenda to be able to like even drive them. I think this manual one twenty four wagon, I've had this thing for a few months. First time I drove it was yesterday really? <laughs> or two days ago when the guy came before he came to, to buy it. Yeah. Literally I, I my brother drove it down to Delaware. Uh, Steve drove it around a couple times, uh, back and forth to get like cleaned up. Um, but I got in it the other day, and I just assumed, oh, whatever, it's an M103. You know, I know what these things drive like. And I got in this one, and it like, I, I was floored. I was like, this thing doesn't drive like a regular one M103. I think it's because of the manual gearbox. Right, I've never driven direct. an M103, but it's still it's like automatic must have so much drivetrain loss. So it was, I was like, this is amazing. I was <laughs> wow. like, this thing is awesome. So, and I think after driving that. I was a little bit more confident in the guy who came in to look at it was going to really enjoy driving it because I was surprised by it. Even if you're used to and like a 24-valve M104, which is, you know, on paper a lot better. Well, in reality, a much better motor. Um, yeah, this thing did not upset me whatsoever. So, yeah, sometimes I get to drive them. Sometimes I get to drive them a little bit too much and I break them. And then sometimes I, I don't get to see them. I don't even get to see them at all. That's so. a fine line, by the way. You know, how much do you drive the car to enjoy it without doing too much that you devalue it somehow. Right. I drive the least expensive, most banged up car that I import at any given time. So right now I drive up this K-Van <laughs> that I drive around town. Actually, my Colt actually now, I drive right. that. And actually the Colt my brother was driving, you guys just missed him when he was here. Um, that car is in a dire state right now. We're actually going to do a lot of work on it over the next two weeks because I have suspension coming in that I bought in Japan that's coming in for it. Um, it's getting a bunch of body work done and it's going to get a little bit of a refresh on life. But before that... Uh, my brother was driving it, and I think, I think I don't think it's firing from all four cylinders right now. I think it's like like limp in limp mode. Right. So he was driving it home one day, and I didn't feel comfortable with him driving that. So I I thought I've been in multiple positions of distress in these cars. You know what like, to do, right? If the thing broke down on me, it would just be another day at the office. But for him, I didn't want to put him in that position. So I gave him the K van uh, <laughs> so that I could subject myself to this. Right. Um, so he, Both he, of these being right-hand drive cars. So, you know, yeah. he, he knows a little bit of something to be oh, able he to does. drive. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah he, he's, he's been through... And he's a he's a big part of my 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 um, work here. He's a big part of the business. I mean, he's the reason that these cars look as good as they do both like in person and in photos. He does a lot of my detailing. Um, up until recently, he's now out uh, at my parents' house in Long Island. Um, but he was living in the city, and he would come out um, and help me through, you know, the detailing, do all the photography work, do all the listings, get everything presented as nicely as they possibly can. So. Yeah, he's a huge part of the business. So Ferris and Steve are really like, you know, my um, my core, um, you know, Team. guys who kind of keep me being able to do this, you know. 
So, yeah, definitely appreciate them. Um, so, you know, to kind of round things out, you found the shop. Yep. You found the guys to help you. Yeah. You know, you were still doing your full-time job. Yep. At what point did you decide that this was going to be your full-time job? And, like, for other people, other car enthusiasts who want to, you know, turn their corporate job into their passion or, like, you know, do their passion, make that their career. Yeah. What advice would you give to them? Uh, and stuff like that? What advice? I mean, if if you know that you want to do this full-time there's you know there's ways to do it um the the way that i the route that i took um was probably i would say you know for anybody i don't know how many people have found themselves in this business um without setting out to doing it but i i think that it was a pretty traditional way that anybody kind of finds themselves into an alternative um to what their normal career was and that is by just starting to do it and then working their way up incrementally so i started doing this like i said to import this uh, skyline, and you know, once I started doing that, I was still working full time in Midtown. I started spending, you know, my daytime doing, uh, you know, regular work, and then once the day ended, I would be I would sit at my desk, stay at the computer, and just that it was perfect buying cars out of Japan because that's when the auctions were going off. So I was, right. I my nighttime job started, and I started doing this, you know, little by little, and you know, kind of trickled in, and then it got to a point where I was doing this a lot. And I will say that it was probably getting to a point where it was um, affecting my job performance uh, <laughs> at, uh, at actual work. So I was really having a hard time like pushing off doing this to do regular work and vice versa. It was a struggle. Not well, to mention much more interested in this. I was much more interested in this. And then there were some situations where like I had to take, you know, you take off work to go on vacation. I took off work because I had to take a car to a mechanic or pick it up from the mechanic. Right. So my days off were spent my, you know, my, yeah, my days off nice been job. working. So, um, and then, you know, it got to a point where this was, I had a couple really good wins. I had a couple like really like bolstering experience where that were like, you know, encouraging to try and do this full time. Um, and I was, I guess I, I, I went to work and I had not planned to, to do this. Um, but I went into work one day and I kind of found myself in a position of like, you know, I have an opportunity here to either transition into another uh, uh, job within the company. Um, and I took that opportunity, and I think that I probably didn't think it through well enough, is that I said, I'm going to take this opportunity instead to move to another, you know, position to just leave. And I I quit. And I was, you know, two weeks, I was out, didn't tell anybody, didn't tell my girlfriend, didn't tell my parents, didn't tell anybody. And then, you know, I think the next day my girlfriend sent me an email to my work email, and I got bounced back. And she's like... <laughs> Uh, why, why did the, why did this email get bounced back? And I was like, all right, well, something I guess you need to tell cat, me. cat's out of the bag. So I was doing this simultaneously, like pretty heavily. And you know, while that may or may not be the traditional way of doing it, obviously, you know, if you knew that this is what you wanted to do from the get go, um, you know, I would say what I would encourage anybody to do is that at this point there's, there's enough access, enough people, enough places, and maybe you're motivated because of somebody that you've seen doing it. I would say reach out to them and either try and get yourself involved with them to some extent and really learn uh, how to do this because there is no need. Well, there is, there is benefit to learning it all yourself, but there is no need to go through the fire as severely as you would if you just kind of jumped into this thing feet first, there's no need for that, you know? And that I would say if you wanted to do it in like a relatively, uh, a relatively reasonable time frame, you know, to do it that way, get yourself linked up with somebody. There's plenty of guys out there who you can probably connect with, 
you know, and maybe even specifically within the importing business or car sales business uh, that appeal to you in particular. Maybe you're interested in just doing GTRs or just doing Italian cars or just doing G-Wagons. Plenty of guys out there who you can line yourself up with. I would say probably, you know, reach out to them on Instagram, Facebook. Those are the majority of the business, by the way. I see, I think what you do is a little unique because most of the guys I see are doing just what you say. Hey, we do G-Wagons. Yeah. We do, yeah. Uh, we do range, old Land Range Rovers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we do, you know, we do GTRs or, or S13s. And, and I think like about that. this often. I think about the fact that, like, my life would probably be a lot easier if instead <laughs> yeah. of there being 15 different cars in here, there were 15... Same sort of E thirty four M fives. You know, I was just the I was just the M five guy, or I was just the G wagon guy, or I was just the GTR guy. Be a little less fun though. It'd be, but the other thing, like I I thought about this early on, is that you know once that market goes away, because it inevitably will, or it changes, and you no longer can either. Well, I mean, look, there's some stuff that's long term. You could be a Porsche guy, and the P car market will always seemingly be gold. Haggerty says the 911 market will be coming down this next year. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, uh, I don't we'll believe it when I, we I, see I, it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Unbelievable that it's been as high as it has been for it's, a sustained amount of time. Four percent, by the way. So it's a pretty small dip. Yeah. Man, it must. Yeah, those, all, all those guys losing four percent of their equity in in their cars is. Yeah, probably detrimental. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, After a 100% increase. Yeah, <laughs> really. Um, so I think that, like, there's plenty of guys who do this, like, niche enough. And I think that that's, that's great because it probably makes their day very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you kind of corner yourself into a market. Unless you can find a way to kind of corner yourself while also being, like, maybe not cornered, uh, like, too specifically. So that if, in case that market goes away... Right you know, or your funnels go away from where you're allowed to, you know, where you're capable of buying the cars from. Um, Cause you know, once the cars dry up in Japan, if you're only buying cars out of Japan and you don't know how to do anything else, um, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Like any, any business, you got to diversify. You diversify. So I uh, thought about this early on. I thought, well, this is going to be hell trying to figure out, um, you know, lots of little things about lots of cars instead of, you know, uh, everything about one particular uh, genre at least. Um, I knew that would be a kind of a headache to try and manage, but um, more interesting, more captivating, you know, more noteworthy to like, you know, you know, even talk about, even be proud about like getting up in the morning and saying, I, I do this and I, you know, I, I go out and I, you know, I buy and sell stuff that is interesting that people have never seen before. So I, I consider all these things and that's where I found myself into this market of like, you know, I'll, I'll get anything that I think, you know, is, is good and, you know, what's up and coming and hot on the market, whatever. Um, Whatever you want to call it, interesting. I I go out and I buy stuff that I find interesting. So, well, you know, I think you got to count yourself as lucky. Uh, you know, think about the guys who trade stocks for a living, right? Yeah. So, they trade little little you know numbers on on the computer. Uh, I, I couldn't yeah. do it. Digits right. On the I screen. Could, that, I this is kind it. of like trading stocks, yeah. but you get to play with the physical asset, and it's something you're really passionate about. That so. was important for me. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it digitally. I just I never got it. I never understood it. I mean, I I did work in you know tax accounting, so I you know I'm I'm not completely um, illiterate when it comes to these things, but I the physical tangibility of these things is definitely important for me to like you know wrap my head around you know. And it's something that I could actually, um, you know, it's almost like you're producing a product at the end of the day. You're not, you're not just buying and selling cars. You know, you're producing, uh, you know, an end result from something that starts like, you know, three or four months earlier when, you know, you find it. You think like, okay, how am I going to get this thing here? How am I going to, you know, pres- you know get it, uh, you know, com- to completion? How am I going to get this thing working right, looking right? 
um, you know, feeling right and then uh, presented correctly and to the correct audience. Like not every car is a bring a trailer car, as right. most people might think. Um, and not every car is a Craigslist car or eBay car or like uh, maybe your your demographic of person who'd be interested in this is like, you know, very niche, very specific. And like, you know that you just got to go and target them in particular, you like know. Put it on auto trader. Whatever. <laughs> You're you, right. You, like you got to know, right. like you got to know all these things beginning to end before going into it. Sure. Like, you know, you could probably get by a couple times without. But if you're going to be doing what I'm doing, you really got to see the full picture when you start. Um, so it is like a full on production and you got to really know all these things going forward. Um, and it's it's you know, it's tangible where like I, I, I can look at it and I can say, okay, I can visually see the end of the, the end of the picture here and I can see every step that goes on along the way and I can actually contribute to it and, and change it. So to me, that is important. Just, I, who I am as a person, that's just how I know what to deal with it. When it's like, right. I'm going to put money into, um, you know, uh, stock or, or, uh, um, whatever real estate. mutual funds or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Real estate. I mean, too, I probably would get into my girlfriend's in real estate, but you know, I, something tangible that I can actually, um, have some domain over and maybe, yeah, maybe cars a little bit more so than real estate. Cause mm -hmm. you can actually like a little bit more fluid. You can add a little bit more value. I yeah. think that's, that's yeah, easier and more fluid. Um, that's, right. this market, your specific market is certainly less flooded than the real estate market. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. So, well, yeah. listen, I think we should wrap it up, but uh, really nice meeting you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, wishing you guys. lots more success. Thanks. And yeah. everybody, if you're looking for a imported car that's interesting, <laughs> yeah. hit up Rami. Well, yeah, we, got, we have interesting stuff. Uh, we have interesting stuff in inventory. And then, yeah, I know we spoke a lot about getting cars out of Japan because that's sort of the easy thing that um, is uh, you know, easily accessible on a regular basis to get cool, cool shit from. But, um, I get, I will import cars and I have from, uh, you know, South America, um, uh, Middle East, I have pretty good connections in the Middle East. So I brought a few cars in over from Saudi Arabia, um, or, you know, anywhere in that region. Um, you know, we'll go out and we'll find stuff in Europe if, you know, if it warrants it. So if you are interested in actually something in particular that you really been itching to get, um, yeah, hit us up and, uh, I'll, I, I go treasure hunting and I go out and I find you the best one that I think we possibly can get for the money. So, and you know, it will be the best one and I know it will be the best one. I'll figure out every, every bit of logistic, uh, nuance from getting it bought. Cause you know, you don't know who the hell you're dealing with if you're not dealing with the same person every day. So I like imported a, a Delta hill climb car for a customer of mine, like, I don't know, two months ago. And it was from some guy in Sweden, never met the guy, never heard of him. Uh, never, imported a car from Sweden. I don't speak Swedish. Um, was able to get that whole deal kind of manipulated to, you know, being secure and who we were sending money to, um, you know, getting uh, a reputable company to pick it up, uh, get it, you know, loaded and sent over to us. And then obviously all the brokerage stuff on this end, I got everybody set up to, to kind of handle that on the way in. So I handle it all. I'll to kind of, I'll go out and I'll do what most people probably don't have written in their business plan. Even test for asbestos. Right, <laughs> Even test right, for asbestos. Right. I keep going back to this. I literally, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, that's, that's one for the books. Yeah, yeah. That one will be with me forever. I, <laughs> I have a feeling I'll run into that guy at a car meet at random when I'm out and like maybe in the West coast. So. Maybe it'll give you his, uh, give you that money. Finally, I'll finally be able to collect. I showed up here to collect. Uh, yeah, but it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys. Thanks for listening to Autoholics Anonymous by the Autoholic. Tune into future episodes and follow our adventures at v-autoholic.com 
or on Instagram at the.autoholic and Twitter at theautoholic, straight through. Stay safe, but don't forget to drive fast and take chances. Cheers! Introduction music by Stephen Diamond.